Hello, friends, and welcome to this solo episode of the Star Wars Universe podcast. Today, I'll be talking about Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 7. And as you can hear, we're going back to the old days. Uh, I'm This is Matthew, your host. I'm traveling at the moment. And so, unfortunately, I don't have access to my uh, laptop, the, the full recording studio I normally have. Plus, I unfortunately had the uh, my normal co-host, Ashley, has had a ton of things going on. She had to cancel. I had to reschedule. So I'm recording under not the best circumstances today, but there was just so much I wanted to talk about with this episode. I promise we're going to do some follow-ups with other people as well, get some other perspectives. But for today, you're just going to get a solo episode. I've got a lot to share. And as always, I want to start the conversation. So I want to hear from you all in the comments and the feedback in, in all of that. All that more after commercial break, we have no control over. All right, welcome back. Like I said, I'm Matthew, they, them pronouns. Let's talk about this episode because there's so much that happened. I, I, I admit, I am someone who's been really enjoying the show, the, the Mandalorian season three. I know it's been controversial. It's not for everybody. I think, though, that this episode helps to tie together a lot of the things that people have been, have been having trouble with or missing or things like that. It still may not be your favorite, and that's fine. I'm just going to talk a little bit about what I saw in the episode, some of the questions it raised, some things that I didn't think were perfect, but, you know, let's get into all that. And let's start where, let's start with the Shadow Council that we get towards the beginning with Moff Gideon and all the other people who are helping to put together the, the old remnants of the Empire. First of all, I love hearing that while on the one hand there are, there is much more cohesion than we would have thought, that it's not just these disparate warlords who are fighting with each other, that there is some kind of unified plan, and that they're intentionally showing themselves as a lot less organized than they are, that there is still infighting, that there is still some some conflict. Because one thing I've talked about at other points is I love the idea of someone like the emperor or other Sith leaders or any other leaders who are able to manipulate people because they can see what all the individual people want and make it work for their overall goal. What I think is much less interesting, and it's kind of boring, honestly, is when it is just everyone is actually working for the goal and all the conflict is fake and all this kind of thing. It's why I think of Dooku being revealed as working directly for Sidious the entire time takes away a lot from the potential story of Dooku and the Separatists, and is kind of a really boring moment for Star Wars. So seeing that the Shadow Council exists, that they clearly all have the same overall goal, but that they're fighting, that they're not sure about it, it gives me a lot of hope, especially because I get the sense that maybe not everything is pointing towards uh, Palpatine coming back. Maybe that some of them are wanting to go in a different direction, and that they have different ideas, and certainly Moff Gideon seems to have his thoughts. Of course, having um, Thrawn teased is such a great thing. I admit that since we had just gotten the announcement of his casting a couple days ago at Star Wars Celebration, I thought it was a little weird that we teased Thrawn so much and he still didn't show up on screen, but fair enough. He may not well not show up in the season at all. It was just weird timing. But it's great to hear him teased. And of course, for anyone who has loved him ever since the Heir to the Empire books by Timothy Zahn, some of the first Star Wars books that came out in the Legends canon. Uh, he has his, uh, you know, his second in command and the person's kind of point of view character for Thrawn 
is Captain Pelion. And so seeing Captain Pelion on screen, perfect rendition, absolutely loved it. So a lot of great stuff going on there. This also gives me a chance, and this is going to be a bit of a digression, but I think it's really essential to what The Mandalorian is doing. And it's a topic I know I've heard some people be very frustrated by, so I just want to offer it in perspective. I want to talk about what's happening with the New Republic, because a lot of the conversation that I hear seems to go in one of two ways. Either that the New Republic should have just been great and wonderful, and they're mad that any problems are having, or that this is proof that the New Republic is just as bad as the Empire, and so there's absolutely no difference, and that that's disappointing. And I think that what this show is doing, and it actually ties really well into what was done with Resistance, the TV show, with what was done with a number of the books, and and what was kind of hinted at in the sequel movies, though I think much like The Clone Wars helps to explain the prequels, these shows and books are really needing so much to help explain the sequels, is kind of a third way. And it's what, because to me, what I'm getting at from this is the New Republic is not the Empire by any means. The New Republic is an attempt at democracy and freedom and some kind of justice in the Empire. And it is a long, long way from perfect. And it has bureaucracy and all the problems that bureaucracy can lead to. And it has corruption. And it has people trying to thread very difficult needles or trying to decide. How much do you decide to, you know, use authoritarian tactics in any way, shape, or form? Uh, or do you not? Do you, but, but if you have no authority whatsoever, how does the government enforce anything? Uh, how, do you, how do you make all this work? And for anyone who thinks that that seems weird or why is this a hard thing, I would just say look at actual history because the history of our world, and this goes back as far as you can go back, but also to right now, is that establishing democracy, establishing freedom, establishing healthy, good government is a very difficult thing. And it's made even harder when it is coming as an, a, a transition from strict authoritarianism. If you take a look at what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, one of the big warnings there was always like, it's really difficult when someone like Saddam Hussein has destroyed any kind of democratic institutions to shift to democracy immediately. For anyone who's old enough to remember the fall of the Soviet Union, this was a real concern about can we establish democracy there? And the, the fact that that country has fallen back into authoritarianism with Putin, who, again, I don't, don't want to get into the, the politics of all of those things, but I'm just using those as a couple of examples of places where we tried, someone tried to move a former authoritarian system back to democracy or to democracy for the first time, and it eventually came back to authoritarianism or came back to some conflict between uh, a very troubled democracy and authoritarianism. These things happen all the time. It's easy, I think, especially for those of us who grew up in like the 80s and 90s and this idea of, look, democracy won, freedom won. Why would people ever choose authoritarianism? Why would people ever choose fascism again? And we're seeing it in our own world. And, and a part of that is because to establish these democracies, to establish freedom, is a really difficult thing. It's how do you build up these democratic institutions? How do you, as I said, use governmental authority in ways that don't seem authoritarian? How do you find that line? How do you find that needle? 
I did a rewatch of the sequel movies last night. I haven't gotten to Rise of Skywalker yet. I'm going to do that later today. But one of the things that I think those movies are hinting at, even though they don't really, you know, finish the story of, but I do think, as I said, that the all these other things are finishing that story for them, is that as the First Order is emerging, the New Republic isn't sure what to do. Because it's the tolerance paradox. It's the, do they crack down on the First Order? And, and part of why the resistance is formed is because that's, that's the way to fight the First Order, because the New Republic isn't sure what to do about it. And so to tell me that you have this government, the New Republic, that fundamentally wants to do better and is being led by people like Mon Mothma and General Organa and, and other people like that who fundamentally want this to be a better government, but you still have things like, you know, corrupt officials and bureaucracy in which good ideas get totally lost and a system for how to reintegrate former imperials that has a lot of problems and people who are telling themselves, oh, well, it's this imperial torture device, but we're using it at a low level, so it's really fine. All of those things make complete and total sense to me. All of those things, I think, are things that are, it, it doesn't mean the New Republic is fundamentally evil and wrong. It means it's struggling. And certainly someone who wants to say, well, this is proof that all governments are, are fundamentally evil and wrong. I, I'm not an anarchist like that, but I, I think you can make that case. And certainly, I think, like I said, you know, the attempt to make a healthy government, even in our own world, like I think it's very, there's very few governments I would point to and say, oh, yeah, this is a perfect government. And there's no one I would point to as perfect. There are some that are a lot better than others. There are many that claim to be democratic. They're certainly nowhere near as good as they could be. Uh, you know, you know my thoughts on my own government, but but that putting putting that aside. And so the portrayal we are get the portrayal we are getting of the New Republic, to me is is perfect. And it's one of my frustrations of the sequels was that we didn't see the struggle of leadership. We didn't see how hard it is to run a new republic, that running a rebellion is a lot easier. And one thing I like a lot in the books that we're getting is that Leia is often in this situation where she's like, well, I could be the good bureaucratic leader that I could be and do all the good bureaucratic stuff that I know is right, but I hate. Or I could just jump in the Falcon with Han and go, you know, liberate Kashyyyk, as, as happens in one book. Granted, it, it, Han really gets the ball rolling, but she eventually gets on board. You know, it's a struggle. And I think in terms of movies and TV shows, watching a ragtag bunch of rebels is a lot more interesting than watching bureaucrats, than watching people slowly work through the boring but essential processes of government. So anyway, all this is to say that I think what they've set up in this of that the New Republic has the right intentions, but is governed by people and people are people and some of them are totally idealistic and maybe foolish. Some of them are very cynical and trying to get as much out of it as they can. Most people are somewhere in the middle. And that, that the problems with it and the fact that there are you know, all these promises of we'll overthrow the empire and everything will be wonderful. And now that's not turning out as well as people had hoped. And so some people are saying, well, maybe it was better under the empire. Maybe this first order thing could be better. Or maybe whatever the, the Moth Gideons and the like of the world are doing could be better. It all makes total sense to me. So. A little bit of a rant over there, but I wanted to kind of give all that talk. So let's now talk about kind of one of the main focuses of this of this episode, which is the, the Mandalorians coming together. We're getting these two different groups of Mandalorians, three different really in some ways, 
all coming together to find common ground in some beautiful, beautiful story ways. And first, this is just kind of a small thing, but I'm wondering if anyone else noticed this. Katie Sackhoff, the person who was the voice actress for Bo-Katan and now is the actress playing Bo-Katan, which great carryover there. For many of us uh, geeks, she first came to our notice because she played Starbuck in the reboot of uh, Battlestar Galactica. In Battlestar Galactica, in the first season, forgive me spoilers for a show that's 10, 15 years old now, I'm bad with dates, but there's a season, an episode where she gets stuck on a planet and she winds up basically stealing a Cylon ship, uh, Cylons of the Enemies in Battlestar Galactica, long story, but basically, and flying it back to the Galactica, and she's doing everything she can to tell people, like, no, 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 no this is not an enemy ship, this is me. And so she paints her name, Starbuck, on the underside of this gray metal ship in red paint. Am I the only one who, when I saw the Mandalorian symbol painted in red paint on the bottom of this gray metal ship, had that flashback? Like, it's a small thing, but the directors and the writers have been so aware and had so many little, like, Easter eggs and callbacks and things like that. I feel like there was an intentional connection made there, and I loved it. Even if it wasn't intentional, I definitely saw something there, and I loved it. So let's talk, though, about the more serious thing here, which is that these different groups coming together. And again, to me, this has been one of the major themes is it's diaspora. It is what happens when you get a central people who then are broken off into numerous groups. And, and as those groups spend time with each other, they develop their own legends. They develop their own stories. And what happens when they come back together? And I think there are many there are many diasporic peoples in our world today or that have been dia- had had diasporic experiences. For myself, I am someone as I've talked about, I came from an interfaith family, my mother's Christian, my father's Jewish. My own religion today is Christian. I do not claim to be Jewish. Uh I'm not claim my religion is not Judaism. But my father's Judaism and and that of his family was a big part of my upbringing and my and my you know, influences my culture. And so it's a big part of who I am today, and I'm very much involved in a lot of that world still today, certainly through my family. And so seeing diaspora cultures come together and have conflict over everything from, you know, the the big ideas of do you keep your helmet on and what does a sword mean, all the way to how do you play a board game, this makes total sense to me. And here again, I, I I know people love to sort of say, well, how intentional was the timing of this? Shows get delayed all the time. So I think this probably was a coincidence. But having the episode where these peoples come together and they they have a meal together, although half of them can't eat, but still the, the armor says, let's set a feast for them. And they come to learn more about each other's traditions and they have some conflict. And at one point, one of them, one of them said, Din says, for thousands of years, we have been on the verge of extinction, and for thousands of years, we have survived. That line is almost a quote from the, the, the Seder, which is the way you celebrate many, most, all Jews celebrate Passover, uh, the, the, which is literally happening right now. I think last night was the last night of it, but definitely the episode aired on the seventh night of it, and it... The whole thing felt incredibly Jewish to me. It felt like it was referencing so many parts of that story, especially that line of 
we're always on the verge of extinction, but we always find ways to survive. As I said, people have said some version of that line at Passover Seders for thousands of years. And of course, the interesting thing is, and part of why I, I, I connected with this so hard, was that at the Passover Seder that, that my family held, again, I'm not a Messianic Jew. I, I don't think Christians should hold these things. I'm only doing this as a part of my family. If you're mad about that, that's a whole other story. But uh, did it in partnership with my, my sister-in-law, who's Jewish, and, and others like that. Um, but my, my point being that one of the things we talked about at that Seder was how most of the, the traditions that my family had were out of the Ashkenazi Jewish tradition, which was the Jews who went to Eastern Europe. And that actually, that you know, that that like any diaspora tradition, there are Jews all over the world who formed their own traditions. Sephardic Jews have different ideas, including some like the basic rules of what it means to honor Passover and to not eat any leavened products are different between some Ashkenazi and some Sephardic Jews. And so, I don't know, all of this of them coming together, uh, you know, and having to learn about each other's practices and ideas, both on the very big theological, you know, philosophical level, down to how do you play a board game? It made so much sense to me. I don't think they're just making this a Jewish metaphor. I think that's just the lens through which I and many fans see it. I think this is there's certainly many differences from the Jewish experience, and and again, to be very clear, like there are many other diasporic cultures that have had similar. And if you're part of one and want to write in and tell me about it, I would love to hear that. It just, for me, as someone who went to a Passover Seder and then a few nights later watched this, the connections I felt were so strong. Okay, so that's my long aside. Let's get back to the episode itself, though, because to me also, it really was the coming together of these different really religious you know, traditions. And to me, one of the things that this episode really highlighted is that I, I think something a lot of folks have gotten wrong, and, and, and I mean wrong, I'm being very early critical there, but you know what I mean. I, I can't edit myself this time, so it's just all stream of consciousness. But I heard a lot of people refer to the Children of the Watch as fanatics and religious zealots, whereas the Night Owls and Bo and all her people, you know, that they're just regular Mandalorians. And one of the things I think that this has really shown and that Bo, that Din's speech to Bo, which was so powerful, really highlighted, is that you have two different groups who each have some things that they hold sacred, that they hold as fundamental, that the other disagrees with. And so on the one hand, the children of the watch might seem like they are the more fundamentalist. You know, the you can never take your helmet off. If you do, you become an apostate. And they have all these things that they hold to be the creed. And, and they judge as apostates, quite literally, those who don't see it that way. But then remember, Acts calls them primitives. And they all have this strong belief that is just as much a creed, it is just as much a, a religious-focused fo idea, even if they don't say it, that whoever possesses the dark saber, you know, that that person gets to rule Mandalore, especially if they have won the saber in this very specific kind of way through direct combat. And, and as Din says, his people never cared about that. You have both of these groups with very strong traditions and creeds for all intents and purposes, having to find a way to work together and to find to find the truth in each other. And I think for anybody who thinks like that has been the arc of Din in this in this season and of Bo, is together them finding that. And so that that moment where where she's having her doubts and 
she says, all I have is this blade to keep my people together. And he basically says no. He gives her this great speech and about you know how his people don't care about the blade. They care about honor. They care about you know uh, leadership. And, and he ends it with you know all the things that she has. And he says, these are the reasons I serve you, Lady Kreese. Think about how far we've come. Because at the end of last season, he wanted to give her the saber because he didn't care about it. He didn't think it meant anything, and he was like, who cares? You have it. I don't care about any of this. Now he's saying he does care. He does want to see Mandalore liberated. He thinks that she should be the one to lead it, and, and it, it kind of confirms that he gave her the, the dark saber because he thinks she has earned it. It, it is such a switch, and it's, it's both of these groups coming to this place of middle ground and coming to this place of understanding, and it is, to me, it's a beautiful confirmation of her leadership. It's a beautiful confirmation of his place in all of this. That, you know, the armor talked about those who walk between. That's been him because he is a children of the watch, but he also was a an apostate from them for a while. He found his way back. He has spent so much more time with the night owls than any other of the Mandalorians. He's the one who can see that. So to me, all of that was just so beautiful. It's one of my favorite parts of the episode. And we'll get to more about uh you know, the confirmation of her leadership, particularly by Paz Vizsla, in a little bit. A couple other quick things, though, about it. Um, Bo-Katan admitting that she did surrender. And the fact that she admits that in this same episode where her leadership is confirmed by Paz Vizsla, of all people, and, and all of his hardcore people, just another beautiful, beautiful writing moment. It, it's such a well-done story of how these people are coming together under her leadership. And that, that admitting you were wrong can, can often be one of the most powerful things a leader can do. Um, let's talk about Mecha Grogu for a second. And that, that's a phrase I'm using a lot. Granted, I don't know a lot of like the Mecha anime world. I know a little bit of it. So maybe some people are like, well, here's why it's not a real Mecha. Of course, it's not actually a real Mecha. But to me, that will always be Mecha Grogu. Is it a little silly? Yes. Is there ways in which I think this season, especially with this and like with Lizzo and Jack Black, the tone of it is a little sillier than it has been in past seasons? I think so. I'm here for it, though. I absolutely don't mind it. Um, I had a conversation with Paul, who's been my frequent guest on this podcast, who's a co-host for a long time, and I'll have more to say on that in a little bit. And I do feel like the tone of this season is somewhat different. And I get that if that's not what you're looking for. But to me, I loved it. I thought Mecha Grogu was great. And while it's cute and adorable and he gets to be a toddler, and I have so many friends who are the parents of toddlers who just had nightmares about, you know, their toddler in a six-foot robot suit being able to say no, 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 no. Um, but the moment when he breaks up the fight between when, you know, the fight over the rules of a board game, but it comes to literal blows and, and to swords, knives, and Grogu steps in, and and Din says, he didn't learn that from me. To me, that's such a beautiful moment about Din and Grogu's story. Because, you know, I think there's a way to see the first two seasons as trying to get Grogu back to the Jedi. But then who cares? Because he just leaves the Jedi and comes back to Din. I think it is such a beautiful story because you've got Grogu to the point where he can make the choice. But then in that Part of the point of that is that he didn't just, it wasn't just that he rejected everything the Jedi taught him. 
When Din says he didn't learn that from me, I think it's very clear he means he learned that from the Jedi. Because what is more Jedi than to put your own self at risk by placing yourself in between two fighting people or two fighting factions? So just a great, great moment for, for Grogu. Um, quick question on Mandalore. I, I think this has been answered online, but I just needed to throw it out there. When their kind of land ship boat, which, by the way, I loved all the things about the night owls who'd been left behind. Again, it could have been like, now we have to take two more episodes to win their loyalty. I love that we didn't do that. It was like, no, you're Bo-Katan. We understand what happened. It sucks for everybody. We're back. Love that. Um, but then their kind of land ship is attacked. I guess it's a land a ship ship as well. They're on the water at one point. It's attacked by this huge beast. Did anyone else think that was the Mythosaur? Um, has anyone else gotten confirmation that it definitely wasn't? The fact that none of the group went, oh my god, that was a Mythosaur, tells me it probably wasn't a Mythosaur. It was probably just a sea monster. And I, I went on record on Twitter last night. I'm kind of bored with Star Wars people fighting huge monsters. Um, it, it just it doesn't do anything for me anymore. I don't know if it ever really did, but you know, Rancor was fun. We had some great moments, but I, I kind of want Star Wars to move on from that. That's my own thing. If you disagree, that's fine. Um, I'm pretty convinced the fact that none of them made a big deal of it is that it wasn't a mythosaur. But I'm just kind of wondering if anyone else had that same thought. So let's get to the big scene at the end. Because, and here I'm going to talk a little bit about the way I at least watch shows like this. Because I think the story beats were absolutely beautiful and powerful. And I think the execution of it was kind of sloppy. And let me talk about the execution first and then kind of make an overall point. Well, actually, let me back up a second and say, here's my thing about how people watch media. For me, when I'm watching a moment like that and, you know, where it is this fight scene and where the, the point is supposed to be like that, the, the Mandalorians are in this fight and that they kick a good deal of ass, but then they get left into a trap. And then as part of the trap, the situation is created where there's only one way for them to get out. And that for them to be able to get out, Paz Vizla has to make this great heroic last stand in which he kills lots and lots of the enemy, but then is killed by the Praetorian Guard. And it's this beautiful, beautiful moment of him who has been the most critical of Bo-Katan, the most critical of the Night Owls, sacrificing himself for, for the Mandalorians, but specifically for her and her leadership and acknowledging her as leader and that he is willing to give himself for her vision of what's going to happen to the Mandalor Mandalorians because this is the way, all of that is beautiful. And I get that that is what the writers were giving us. But then there's the question of, did they execute on that? And I think a lot of people have raised some very good questions about, well, wait, if the Darksaber cuts through those walls, why didn't she use that earlier? Or why, if his machine gun thing was so good against them, why wasn't he just gunning them down like that from the very beginning? Or, you know, so many of these things. And I think when you watch media like that, this that's kind of the real question is, on the one hand, I do think that if you nitpick enough, Almost any situation where the writers are saying, here's the emotional beat we're creating for you, and here's how we're doing it, I do think that in almost anything you can nitpick it enough that it falls apart. But I think good writing and good execution 
is such that you get so caught up in it that you don't notice those things or that those things are small enough that they don't you don't notice them they don't pull away pull away from it for myself i was able to get caught up enough in this that those details didn't bother me very much i definitely noticed them um i think beskar armor is great i think it's not exactly clear what exactly beskar protects from and how because giving us basically a firearms fight where everyone's wearing head-to-toe bulletproof armor is kind of non-climactic. And I, I kind of didn't understand why sometimes the shots were working and sometimes they weren't. Maybe it's because, like, you know, there are little hints in the armor or why is it the, that uh, Paz Vizla's weapon, that that could penetrate through Beskar but nothing else could? Why is it that the Praetorian Guard's weapons could penetrate his Beskar? even though lightsabers can't. I, I think there the point is supposed to be that energy weapons, including both lightsabers and blasters, can't penetrate through Beskar, but that a blade still can. And the Praetorian weapons are actual blades, unlike lightsabers. They're just electrified blades, vibroblades. So, like, again, I think there's a way to make it make sense. But, you know, then you get the questions about the, the Darksaber, and could she have used that earlier, and, and a lot of these things. And I guess, so for me, I'm saying, I thought it was a really powerful moment. If I think about it more, do I think it was the best executed moment that I've ever seen? No, not by any means. But do I still think it was a well-executed moment that that captured what it what it meant to capture? Yes. Was I able to kind of get swept up enough in, uh, in it to, to only roll my eyes once or twice and really feel the power of Paz Vizla's sacrifice? Absolutely. Do I also understand people who say that, like, they just... The nitpicking of it, the nitpicking is a pejorative word. Do I understand those folks who are saying the like that they just the because it didn't feel realistic or didn't work for them, it took them out of it and they didn't feel the emotional power of that moment? I, I totally sympathize with that. I can understand that. And I think that's a fair critique. I think that's a fair critique of this episode. I think it's a fair critique of parts of the season. Um, it's just not one that I personally experienced, but but I get it. Uh, and as always, you know, as long as you're expressing that in non-hateful ways and saying, hey, look, here's how I saw the show, I got no problem with that. I think it's awesome. And if that's where you are, please write in. I would love to hear more of that. So that's kind of the, the, the episode as a whole. I wanted to close by saying something that Paul and I talked about a little bit, um, which is, uh, and, and this is a topic I want to maybe bring Paul back for, or maybe with someone else, explore in more depth, but I'll just kind of say a little bit about, which is that. I am loving season three of The Mandalorian. But I think that, and I think those people who are just like, oh, well, it should be a man show. Why is, but, you know, let's throw out all that hate, all that nonsense. But I do think the show has a fairly different tone from the first two seasons. And again, without the like, you know, the hateful sexist nonsense and all of that, I do have some sympathy for folks who are, are missing that, that show. And, of the first two seasons, at least the first season and a half, really. And while I don't, you know, I don't think it's a huge deal whether you call it The Mandalorian or The Mandalorians or blah, blah, blah. And like, again, I don't like, I think there's the, it's a good show regardless. But to me, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of, I was going to take this back to the 90s, but, but, but many people have probably seen this. Look at something like Batman the Animated Series versus Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. Because in those later two shows, Batman from Batman the Animated Series and many of the characters from that 
carry over into that larger show. And it's all the same voice actors, it's all the same characters, it's the same continuity, but it is a different show, and it's a different tone, and it's a little more lighthearted, and instead of Batman being the entire focus, Batman, Batman is now just one of many, and I kind of feel like that's happened here. I kind of feel like this is, both Book of Boba Fett and this are kind of seasons of, you know, Adventures on the Outer Rim, uh, you know, Under the New Republic, or, you know, The Mandalorians, or something like that. And I don't think it's bad. I, I love it. And and for me, having it just be season three of The Mandalorian is totally fine. But I do want to keep that little space for folks who are feeling like this is different than season one and season two. I think that's fair. And I think that's because, in part, I think The Mandalorian ended. Like, I think The Mandalorian was about this journey that first Din was going on. Uh, and then he was going on with Grogu, and they came to a real point of resolution of of him finding Grogu's family, and then Grogu deciding, but no, Din is his family. Now, granted, I, th I think this is still very much the continuation of the story, because I think you can say that then the question becomes, what is Din's focus if it's not getting Grogu to his people? And I think season three has absolutely been a character arc for Din. So I do want to push back against this idea that, oh, it's just Din has been sidelined in his own show. No, he has gotten a great character arc. But yes, the focus is now on the Mandalorians, not the Mandalorian. And the tone is a little bit sillier and a little bit, perhaps even more, in season one and two, it was mostly season one. But some up season two, it was Din off on his own and all this stuff happening around him in the galaxy, but him mostly not getting pulled into it. Now he is pulled into it. Now it is much more that overall story. I think it's great. It is a different tone. So anyway, that's just my thoughts. I'm going to go into a lot more of this with a lot more people coming up. But I uh, just wanted to share all that with you all. Again, because of the technical difficulties, we're not going to do a Patreon thing at the end of this. But we will get back to those soon. I absolutely promise. Apologies for the technical difficulties we're having. But really, I hope you enjoyed this. Um, and if you did, of course, or if you didn't, whatever you feel about it, let me know. Go to theethicalpanda.com. You'll find all the ways to give us feedback, all the ways to give us notes. Um, uh, email, Twitter, TikTok. Uh, last night, I did a long, long, long Twitter feed uh, on uh, re-watching the first two movies uh, of the sequels. I had a lot of thoughts. Uh, I'm getting kicked out of my hotel room pretty soon, but I'm going to go to another hotel room. I'm going to Richmond, Virginia, where I'm working a magic event, but I'm getting to the hotel room early. I'll have some downtime, so that's probably when I'll do Rise of Skywalker and have a lot of thoughts. Check all that out on Twitter, at EthicalPanda77, and you can find all the contact info by just going to TheEthicalPanda at uh, TheEthicalPanda.com or writing to me, Matthew, at TheEthicalPanda.com. So please check out all that out. Please check all of that out. Thank you so much for listening to the Stream of Consciousness. I have spoken. <laughs> <laughs>